This podcast episode was generously funded by an anonymous donor. If you would like to support the podcast in similar ways, please contact Hadley White at hwhite at pbk.org. Thanks for listening. If you enjoy Key Conversations with Phi Beta Kappa, you can now support us by listening in the Radio Public app. Just tap the tip button on our podcast page and leave a tip for any amount up to $100. Your contribution will offset our production fees. Thank you so much for your support. Hello, and welcome to Key Conversations with Phi Beta Kappa. I'm Fred Lawrence, Secretary and CEO of the Phi Beta Kappa Society. This podcast features conversations with Phi Beta Kappa visiting scholars who spend one academic year with us. They travel to up to eight Phi Beta Kappa-affiliated colleges and universities, partake in the academic life, and present a lecture on a topic in their field. Lectures are always free and open to the public. For a full schedule and to learn more about the program, visit pbk.org. Joining me today is Paula Stefan, a professor of economics at Georgia State University and a research associate at the National Bureau of Economic Research. Her research focuses on how economics shapes science as practiced at public research universities. Paula, thank you for joining us today. It's a pleasure to be here. And you've done some really provocative research on gender in science and particularly the gender pairing of the gender of a graduate student uh, and the gender of that graduate student's advisor and how that affects publication rates. Tell us a little about that. Well, that is a study that I engaged in with um, with three other co-authors, um, and we had access to an elite university's records over a 10-year period, and we were able to match the gender of the student with the gender of their advisor, and we were able to observe what happened to the student in terms of research productivity while they were a graduate student and after they graduated for three years. And so this is a really rich database from an economist point of view. It's what we call a pooled database, and it allows us to control for all kinds of things you couldn't control for otherwise. And as you say, what we were particularly interested in is we knew the gender of the advisor and we knew the gender of the student, and we wanted to see um, whether productivity depended on that gender matching. But first, just fundamentally, we wanted to see, controlling for field and other things, whether women wrote fewer articles as graduate students than men did. And what did you find? And we found very strong statistical evidence that the answer to that was yes. Not as great a difference as we observe later in the career, which is about 18%, but about 10% while they were in graduate school. So then we go to this question that you mentioned, and that is, does this depend in any way upon whether the student is a woman working with a woman or working with a man, whether it's a male student working with a female advisor, et cetera? And the hypotheses for this are pretty much drawn from from both psychology and sociology, talking about the role women, the stronger role women play in mentoring, and also the role... Um, 
shall we say, perhaps gender bias in the way men and women evaluate the strengths of both men and women. So what was the hypothesis? What did you think you were going to find before the data came in? Well, I think we found, we thought that we would find perhaps the strongest, we really thought the negative result here was going to be women with male advisors, that they were going to be the least productive. Mm -hmm. Um, And we thought they would stand out particularly. What we found is we definitely found that, but what we found is that the most productive group was men writing with women advisors. And they wrote 10% more, and women writing with male professors wrote 8% less when the benchmark is men writing with men. And we found no statistical difference between women writing with women. And the difference of 8%, 10%, these are huge differences. They're huge differences. And I mean... The concept of cumulative advantage, or the Matthew effect, as Robert Merton would say, that to him who hath, even more will be given. I mean, if you leave graduate school with a much stronger portfolio, it's going to have repercussions on your career for the rest of your life. Right. These lives are very path-dependent, and the path is being set right from the beginning here. Absolutely. So let me take you beyond the data, and this is probably the part you're less comfortable with as an economist, not a social psychologist, but here goes anyway. So what's your theory? What's making this happen? Well, I think, I mean, my reading in that literature, and this is an economist reading this literature, but I really do think that there is strong credibility to the fact that when you evaluate the strength of a student, that we have gender biases and that men overvalue men, but women also seem to overvalue men. And on the other hand, women seem to have a mentoring edge and men don't seem to be so good at that. But I'm trained as an economist and I also <laughs> always have to raise the red flag of selection here. Right. So we don't know whether it's also that Women, for example, may be very good at choosing what they think are the best students in the group to write with. I mean, that's possible. Um, Although if that were the case, we'd expect they would also choose the best women to write with. So we would see the same differential effect, Well, I we? think you're right. But, of course, if you have this bias about how you value best, it may not show up. So you're stacking biases on top of biases Absolutely. and getting this, this result. Okay. But I do think it raises a real cautionary flag to any director of a graduate program. Has this been out long enough to start to see some effect? Has there been discussion in the field about how these things are being handled? There's some discussion. I mean, I I should say there's a lot of work done at the undergraduate level looking at these kind of gender matches. But it hasn't been out long enough, really, to see any big impact. Another area you've worked in that has a lot of currency today question of foreign-born scientists is part of the whole question of, of immigration. What role have foreign-born scientists played in American science, and how do you see that all going forward today? Well, foreign-born scientists have played, are disproportionately productive in the U.S. Historically, they have been, and we see that edge even today. There are a number of reasons for that. And one could obviously be back to our friend selection here. Right, that, right, right. You know that they are better when they that we admit better students, and the faculty that we hire who are foreign educated or foreign born have an edge. So there's definitely that at work, and I believe that's a component. 
But there's also, and work I've done with a couple of Italian co-authors, in which we looked at the foreign-born through a survey in 16 countries, we continually see this edge. And we, as economists, try to control for the selection, and we still find the edge. And one of the possible reasons is, if we look at faculty, particularly, and we're talking about faculty, who are hired and go into a particular research situation, there's a reason for their being hired. And that reason could be that they bring unusual skills or they have something that matches very well with the resources that are there. And to the extent that that kind of matching really contributes to productivity, I definitely think that's part of the story. And do we think that the current climate with respect to immigration is going to have an effect on all this? No, I think it's sending a big chill. And and if you look at the Council of Graduate Schools report, we see that at least at the master's level, the number of international students who applied and were admitted last year declined. It held on at the PhD level, but I think we really have to be concerned about this. And there was a National Academy Committee report I was on that looked at this right after 9-11 that raised similar concerns. I always found our challenge was deciding how many international students we wanted to bring to our school because the quality of the students we got was extraordinary and really improved the overall applicant pool and ultimately the student body. Absolutely. So you work at the intersection of science and economics, but you were almost a history major, weren't you? That's true. I was almost a history major at Grinnell College, and I took a couple of courses in economics, and I got hooked on the idea that one could perhaps make more of a difference in the world with economics than one could with history. And it was, I have to say, in the 1960s when the war on poverty was something we all talked a lot about, and I became very engaged in the topic then. Tell me how economics appealed to you in that regard. Well, I've always been intrigued by the fact that if if you want to have change, you have to think about incentives and you have to think about cost, and you have to think about how we can change some of those parameters. And I, I just found the whole idea that one could perhaps have a real effect on policy through knowing these kind of skills very appealing to me. So let's talk a little bit about incentives and costs. You've said that economics is ultimately about incentives and costs. So how do we incentivize science in this society? Well, science is is a system in which there's strong incentives to be highly productive, particularly at research universities. Um, people's promotion comes based on their publications, based on the impact factor of the journal in which they publish, based upon how much external funding they brought in. So those are all incentives to behave in a certain kind of way. And we certainly see incentives encouraging where people submit manuscripts for publication. We see incentives in the way universities behave. I could give many examples, but we'll stop right there Well, for give, now. Let, let's talk a little bit about where people submit their articles. And actually, you've written a little bit about how international scholars' uh, incentive structure affects where they submit. Can you tell us a little about yeah, that? This was a this was an interesting study I did with two Italian colleagues, and we were very interested in the fact 
that a number of countries in the last 15 to 20 years have adopted strategies to try to encourage their scientists to publish in leading-edge top journals. And we took a number of countries and divided these into countries that gave a cash bonus for publishing in a top journal, countries that the bonus or the, the money really went to the university, countries where you could get promoted on an early time frame for publishing in a top journal, and then countries that had no change in policy. And the journal Science kindly gave us all of their submission data for 10 years, and we coded it by the country of the submitting author. And we found, benchmarking it to 2000, that where the greatest growth in submissions came from was countries that were giving cash bonuses. And it was a significant increase. Would you advocate universities to take that approach? If you were advising the provost in your university, would this be a good strategy for the university? Well, I think it's a strategy that um, has a number of perverse incentives attached to it that we could go into. And it turned, but we have to put these incentives in perspective. So, for example, in China, many of these incentives for publishing in science or nature are worth eight to 15 times the salary for that year. They're very, very large. But that's for having an article accepted for publication, not just submitting. Absolutely. And so what we found is that you got this huge increase in submissions without an increase in acceptances. Scientific lottery tickets being sold. Scientific lottery. Although I have to say, and I was very critical of it at the time, if we went back and did the study, we see that the number of articles published by Chinese authors, I believe, has grown significantly in science. Now, of course, there are many factors doing that, but part of it may well be that this really encouraged these scientists to reach out and look for international co-authors who had something to offer in this equation. We've been talking about individuals' incentives, but universities have incentives as well, don't they? Absolutely. So how have we incentivized universities, and to what extent has that been productive, and to what extent would you say these are actually counterproductive incentives? Well, universities have incredibly strong incentives to build their reputation. I mean, reputation matters everything. You are president of a university. We I'm took sure our reputation very you seriously. You take your you reputation bet. very seriously. And one of the things that reputation is based on is the amount of external funding that's coming into the university. Another thing is the number of members of the National Academy that are on your campus, um, that are members of your faculty, number of PhDs bestowed. So universities pay a great deal of attention to those things, and they go to a great deal of work to attract faculty that will be highly productive and will bring in these grants that will also help to pay for the very expensive research space that universities have put up to attract these scientists. Indeed, I like to say that in many ways universities have become high-end shopping malls. Right. That they're in the business of building state-of-the-art research facilities or mall space, and they then turn around and they rent this out to faculty in the forms of indirect recovery and buyout on salary. And in the, in the most extreme case, they, quote, rent it to scientists who are in soft money positions. So they've also 
exported all the risk onto the scientists. Has this always been true with American research universities, or is this a relatively recent phenomenon? Well, I think it's important to remember that universities got very little research money until after World War II. And after World War II, and as, as somebody at NIH said, at the end of world, that science emerged from World War II spelled with a capital S. I mean, science had really delivered during World War II. And of course, we all probably are familiar with the idea that Vannevar Bush wrote The Endless Frontier and, and argued um, very cleverly, lobbied Roosevelt to ask him to write the report. Of course, he was already ready to do that. And, and some, some think that report was already in draft at the time some, he was in. Yes, I think that's quite possible. Got the commission. I think that's very possible. And so, you know, this report is the basis for the great expansion of NIH and for the creation of NSF. Just assume for a moment that there weren't a political problem. What would be the solution if you could design a better system? Well, I have to say this isn't something I've spent a lot of time thinking about because it seems so... Um, speculative. So incredibly speculative, all right? But I think there are a number of these costs that the federal government should just directly support and that should be able to be written kind of above the line. And I also think we need more just basic block funding to universities in that respect. Now, I'm going to guess that one of the reasons that you would want block funding is it would uh, allow universities to have much more speculative research, much more risk-taking research. I know you've written quite a bit about the challenges of universities pursuing risk strategies. I've always told my team, if all your ideas are good ideas, you don't have enough ideas. But is that, in fact, a strategy that universities can afford to pursue today, or have we created incentives against risk-taking research? Well, I think the way our system funds research has strong incentives on it in it to discourage risk-taking. So, I mean, the basic model is that a faculty member is hired and given a startup package and given a lab, and this faculty member is a principal investigator, but that startup package and that those funds is only going to cover that faculty member for two to three years, and the faculty member is going to have to bring in, at research universities, outside funding to stay in business, basically. And you have to do it fairly quickly in your career. And if you don't, your chances for tenure are not that good. And so this puts tremendous pressure on the system to write proposals that are extremely fundable. And we do have evidence that funding organizations are pretty risk-averse also. So if you put incentives from the point of view of faculty that you need something that's going to be pretty sure, a sure bet, and you marry that with reviewers that are somewhat risk-averse, you really foster risk aversion, I think. So why are the reviewers risk-averse? That perhaps is something we should talk to sociologists and psychologists about. But there certainly is strong evidence that reviewers are pretty risk-averse. And I think it's partly... Um, it's not all on for psychologists and sociologists. Once again, it's about incentives. And I think reviewers identify very much with the organization they're reviewing for, so they really want that organization to be successful. And they're very, very worried about the organization looking like it's frivolously, frivolously spending its resources. And so you can hear, and I've been on a number of reviews, 
and I've been a member of council of NIGMS at NIH. I mean, people often are concerned about what it will look like to the public. Are we taking excessive amounts of risk? Is there a difference between public organizations like the National Institutes of Health, National Science Foundation, NIH, and NSF, and private foundations, private organizations that fund? That's a great question. I think, I mean, the, the most work has been done comparing what the Howard Hughes Medical Institute, HHMI, does for funding and their funding model versus the NIH-type funding model. And the two parameters that really stick out there or stand out are that HHMI now funds people for a period of seven years. And if you have that long a window, when NIH used to fund people for three to four years, if you have the seven-year window and something goes south in your research, you have time to recover. But if you've got to have results in three to four years so you can get renewed, so you can get on this again, this cycle again, it does encourage risk aversion, I think. And the other thing is that HHMI has funded what we think of as people rather than projects. So they kind of look at the whole um, person and their research output, and it's not so product project-oriented. And once you make things project-oriented, reviewers just are obsessed with preliminary results. So with all of these funds flowing into a university for research and the incentive to create indirect cost funds that fund other parts of the university, does this create any dislocation within the university overall across from the sciences to the social sciences and across to the humanities and the arts? I think very much so. I mean, the incentives for a university are all there to invest very, very heavily, particularly in the biomedical sciences. And nowhere did we see this more then when the NIH budget doubled, the NIH budget doubled between 1998 and 2003, and NIH kept saying, this is a one-time doubling, don't count on this. But I know how we all responded to that. Universities thought, mm, this is our opportunity to really expand, and almost every university with a medical school and other universities really went on a major building binge to create better research facilities, new research facilities, upgrade their facilities. By NSF data, we see this huge increase in research space for the biomedical sciences during this time, and we don't see that kind of increase in others. Now, you know and I know um, that this doubling didn't continue, and there were a lot of universities caught having borrowed to build these buildings um, having, in some sense, um, mortgaged their future, I think, and you can find a certain amount of research space in mothballs in the U.S. Now, economists like to talk about incidents, and this certainly has incidents in the university. And one suspects that it's not the biomedical sciences that are paying for this. One suspects it's other parts of the university that are. You have had visiting faculty positions all over the world, in Italy, and the Max Planck Institute in Germany, in Belgium. And now you're a visiting scholar uh, for Phi Beta Kappa here in the United States. What attracted you to become a visiting scholar? Well, I see it as just a wonderful opportunity to spend time with students, and I should say also with faculty, 
on campuses that I would never go to before, that I've never been to before, and probably would not go to without this um, visiting scholar program. Now, you've already done a couple of these visits. You want to tell us a couple of stories about some of those visits? I've already done two of these. I just came back from the University of South Dakota, and I found I found student engagement with some of these questions, the questions they ask, their interest in these, to be extremely rewarding. And perhaps particularly rewarding are the casual lunches one has with students where people talk about career possibilities, how you make decisions, and things like that. And that's that's an environment that I haven't really been part of, and I really appreciate that. I'm going to Cornell College in Iowa next week, and... Yesterday, I got an invitation to come to a faculty member's house for dinner with 15 students the day I arrived. And that's just a real opportunity to spend time talking with students. Those are the kinds of things those students will remember more than anything. Long after they've forgotten their multivariable calculus, I suspect they'll remember when they had dinner with you. That's true, but it's also the kind of thing I'll remember from being a Phi Beta Kappa visiting scholar. Thanks for being with us today. Thank you. Thanks for listening. This podcast is produced by Lantigua Williams & Co. Hadley White is the PBK producer on the show. Our theme song is Back to Back by Jan Perchik. To learn more about the Phi Beta Kappa Visiting Scholar Program, please visit pbk.org. I'm Fred Lawrence. Until next time.